Well, you know, um, now you know why I always got in trouble in school. I didn't do anything different. I just did it louder. So um, we're starting a new series this week that's going to go for a few months. We've done a lot of different series. Some were a little bit longer. Some were only three or four weeks. This one could, you know, probably going to be three, maybe four months, maybe longer. We might break it up a little bit, but it's a fascinating series. It's about the life of David. And um, the first sermon title in the series is called Good Eye God, Good Eye. And we'll get to that in a minute. But what I need to do is explain to you why it's so crucial to understand as Christians the life of David. I'm going to start with reading a passage of Scripture in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, and then I'm going to give you a little bit of a five or ten minute introduction, in, and then we'll go into this, the message for today. Matthew 1 1 says, This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. See, part of the reason that Christ was able to be a Savior was not that he was just God, but he was also king. He was also priest. But part of the role of Jesus was to be king. And that's why during the time so many Jews were looking for the Messiah, they expected him to be a military leader who would come back just like David did and rescue them from the plight of the Roman Empire. But it's important to understand that the prophecy behind it was part of Jesus' role was he had to be related to David. And as we go through the life of David over the next few weeks, there is an overriding theme I want you to keep your mind on, and that is this. At every turn, almost everything that happens is the result of the enemy trying to destroy the bloodline to Jesus. Because if he can get David to no longer be king, if he can get David to, uh, you know, to, to have offspring that aren't acceptable to God and, and all these things, if, if he can kill off David's kids, the enemy is working very hard to disrupt the bloodline. And, and so what happens here? Do you guys remember a couple of weeks ago, I preached a message about angels, about angels sitting in heaven and they're in awe at this drama of redemption. Do you guys remember that? And I said, they sit on the edge of their seat, just watching and waiting to see what God is doing in the lives of those whom he has called. This, at this point, becomes one of those high climactic moments in the course of the drama of redemption, this drama of human history and redemptive history. Because at this point, at this very moment, when Samuel comes into contact with David for the very first time, Samuel the prophet, and as Samuel begins to anoint David to be king, at this moment, the enemy says, I got to get rid of this guy. I got to get rid of his legacy. I got to get rid of his heritage because this is the one who will bring the seed that will destroy me. And so the drama begins to thicken. The plot begins to develop as God begins to make a strong nation out of his chosen people, Israel. And the enemy is not happy. And so as we go through the life of David, I want you to have that ethereal view, that, that understanding of the concept that underlying all the real life drama that we're going to look at. We're going to look at adultery. We're going to look at murder. We're going to look at children being lost. We're going to be looking at war. We're going to be looking at deception. We're going to be looking at lies. We're going to be looking at thievery. We're going to be looking at mass betrayal. I mean, it is nasty 
what goes on in David's life. As we go through that whole process, I want to make sure you have the ethereal view of the fact that there is a spiritual war going on above all of that involving the enemy, Lucifer, Satan, the devil. So, let's take a break here and just kind of give you a little bit of understanding. Saul is king. Saul has disobeyed God. Saul has proven that he is not worthy to be the king of God's people. And so at that point, Samuel the prophet is very discouraged. We went through all this. The people asked for a king. God said, no, you don't want a king. Yes, we do. They appointed Saul because he was tall and good looking and strong. And the scripture says he was head and shoulders above everybody else in the land. Saul was a big, strapping, strong leader type with a loud voice. He didn't need a microphone either. And so Saul is king. Saul messes up. And Samuel is discouraged. And we pick it up in 1 Samuel 16. If you have a Bible app or a Bible, whatever, you can use that. Um, I'm not going to put it up on the screen because it's so long. 1 Samuel 16. Today we're going to cover verses 1 through 13. The Lord says to Samuel, dude, get over it. That's not exactly how he says it. He says, the Lord says to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul? Since I have rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill up your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he'll kill me. And the Lord said, take a cow with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the city came out to meet him. And they were afraid of Samuel. Everybody's afraid. Everybody's trembling with fear. And they say to him, why do you come here? Are you on peace? And he says, I have come peacefully. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and the elders and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Let's stop there for just a minute. And I want to go to point one, Samuel's fears. Samuel had been a Lord's, the Lord's instrument in anointing the very first human king of Israel and Saul. He delivered the word of God to Saul. He's the one that said, Saul, today God's favor has departed from you. Samuel has been a bold proclaimer of truth throughout his time and his ministry. And it was difficult, though, for Samuel to move on. Because Samuel was emotionally invested, guys, in this whole thing with Saul. And not only was it difficult emotionally, he was grieving over the fact that Saul was a terrible king. He was sad over the failures because he felt a little bit responsible. Because after all, the prophet is the voice of God. The prophet is the one who brings the word of God to the people and makes sure that they understand it so they can do it. Maybe Samuel thought, you know, maybe I haven't done a very good job. But in the midst of all that, 
He's afraid of replacing Saul because Saul is king. He has the armies. And despite all that Samuel knew and all that Samuel had experienced, he remained human. He remained a fearful person, fearful of a man, fearful of Saul. In spite of Samuel's frailty, right, God provides a means for Samuel to feel confident. He says, go to Bethlehem and say you're going to do a sacrifice. Nothing wrong with that. Certainly Saul's not going to begrudge you doing a sacrifice to me. But then what's interesting is it's not only Samuel's fears, the elders of the town are afraid. Everybody's afraid. So Samuel comes and they're thinking, oh my God. The prophet of God is coming. Hellfire, damnation, brimstone, it's all coming down upon our head. What are we going to do? So they greet him before he gets to the town, right? They got to look out, you know, and hey, this guy looks like Samuel's coming. The elders come out, whoa, 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 Samuel, listen up. What's up, bud? How you doing? Hey, what are you here for? Did we do something wrong? I know God is really mad at, about the Saul thing, the whole rumor around, you know, he's going to be replaced and all. What are you doing here? We didn't do nothing. And Saul, Samuel says, don't worry. I'm just here to do a sacrifice. Get yourselves ready for the sacrifice. Ceremonially cleanse yourself. Get your sacrificial clothes on. All those things. Come with me. I'm going to be there with, with, with Jesse and all his sons. We're going to perform a sacrifice. So those are Samuel's fears. Those are the elders' fears. fears. But then I want to look at Samuel's judgment. I'm going to read chapter, six, or chapter 16, verses 6 through 11 now. Listen carefully to this. Because I believe what we see in the next part is still Samuel's fears bleeding over. And when they came, he looked at Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or his height or his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks upon the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. I believe that Samuel's still afraid. He's still kind of acting like a clandestine sort of prophet, right? He doesn't want anybody to know what's going on. He wants to hide from Saul. And Eliab is this big, strong guy. He's tall, he's rough, he's handsome. He's, and, and, Saul, and Samuel says, surely that's going to be the one to replace Saul. Why would he think that? Because he looked exactly like Saul in many ways. And see, maybe his thought was, if I can get a strong king... Maybe this guy can combat the king now. Maybe he was thinking, you know, we've got to have somebody like Saul because, you know, Saul's, there's going to be a lot of fights and a lot of battles. And, and so his judgment is kind of skewed by his fear. His judgment is skewed by the fact that, you know, Saul is powerful. Saul is evil. And I need another powerful king to combat. Surely God is picking Eliab. Surely Eliab is the man. Do not look on his appearance. God does not see as man sees. Man looks upon the outward. God looks upon the heart. Verse 8. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, God hasn't chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chose this one. Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen any of these. He's not chosen any. 
See, what we see is God first overrules Samuel. God says, look, it's not the big, tall, strong guy you think. That's not him. And there was assumptions about what God wants. Surely God wants another one just like Saul. Tall guy, head and shoulders of everyone else, strong. Surely God's going to do the same thing that time. There were assumptions made. Not only were there assumptions made, but Jesse did not even bring all his sons to the meeting. He was told, bring your sons. Surely it can't be the youngest redhead that's watching over the sheep. And then at the end, look what Samuel says. This is pretty amazing. This is where it gets really exciting. Then Samuel says to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, well, there remains one, the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel says to Jesse, send him and get him, for I am not going to sit down till he comes here. At this point, Samuel's starting to get excited. He says, I'm not going to stand up until he comes in from the sheep field, where he is, bring him in. I want to see him. I'm not going to sit down. And he says, bring me the shepherd. Now, I want to park here for just a minute. This is crucial, guys. Do you understand the theme? Got everybody up. Listen up. This is important. There's a theme throughout Scripture when it comes to Jesus, and that's the idea of shepherd. Let's talk about the significance of being a shepherd. Remember during the Advent Effect series, some of you were here, I talked about the shepherds, how they were the ones chosen to have the first revelation of the fact that Jesus was here. Shepherds were the lowliest people in society. They were the lowest rank on the socioeconomic ladder. They were the people that had social skill problems, maybe. They weren't allowed to be around the other type of normal people. They didn't get invited to the parties, to the feasts. They were in the field with animals. Remember, shepherds keeping watch over their flock by night, and the angel of the Lord shone, and the glory, and round about them, I've got you a king, and all that stuff. David is a shepherd. Matter of fact, Jesus says, I am the great shepherd. And guys, this is where it's amazing, right? Now, I'm sure the angels, when they're watching all this play out, oh, God, you're doing it again, aren't you? Very good writing. Very good. Shepherd, I see it. David's a shepherd. I don't want the tall, strong-looking guy. I want the shepherd, the one you just assumed would not be who I chose as king. That's the one. Bring me the shepherd. And Samuel says, I'm going to stand and pace until you get him here. I can't wait to see this. This guy must be amazing. And then we see what happens. I'm going to read the next passage. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy. That means he's kind of a redhead. He had beautiful eyes. And he was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. And Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him. David, the redhead, short guy who was watching the sheep, anointed him in the midst of all his brothers and the town elders and his dad. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. And so what we see here in this last part of the passage is God's blessing. 
See, what we just shared with you, the first few points were historical, right? What did man do? Here we see what God did. Here's the theological aspect of the passage. God says, I don't want any of those. I don't want the ones you think I want. I want the shepherd. Go get him. And what happens is once God's choice has been made, once God chooses David, David received the Spirit of the Lord. It had nothing to do with any choice or action that David had made. The full blessing of being God's chosen was given to him immediately. Not because David was best suited for the job, not because David earned God's favor, but because God had chosen him to be king. Now, how does this relate to us? Understand, this is kind of the the first part to the story. And this drama over the next few weeks is going to become more and more intense. But this is my favorite part. Let me explain why. I really shouldn't be your pastor right now. No, really. I remember before I went to seminary, I was halfway through my senior year in undergrad in Bible college. And my professors, two of them, called me and they were interviewing each pastoral student. He called me in, right? It's, I'm getting ready. To, it's January of the last semester of my senior year. He pulls me in. He says, you know, Joe, we've been training you and watching you for three and a half years. And we hate, you know, this is a hard conversation for us to have. But we don't think you have the personal skills or the temperament to be a pastor. You have this Tourette's thing. You're always clearing your throat, sniffling. Your facial twitches. When you talk to people, you look like you're angry. (laughs) You talk too fast. You talk too loud. You talk too much. You say things that are inappropriate. Sometimes you cuss. Sometimes you don't know where the social road signs are and you just plow right through them. Sometimes, Joe, you seem to have a pattern over the last three and a half years that you're blind to other people's feelings. You're impatient. You got bad manners. Guys, listen. They were 100% right. They weren't wrong. But you know what? It was irrelevant. Because God had chosen me to serve him with my life. Every deficiency is still here today. My wife will tell you. (laughs) Nightlife kids will tell you. Some of you have experienced my lack of tenderness. Some of you have experienced my angry face. And I'm not really angry. It's a resting angry face. (laughs) Some of you really like that one. (laughs) I do talk too loud. I preached on a microphone a couple weeks ago, for goodness sake. The balcony people said, no, surely you had a microphone on. No, I didn't. I talk too fast. I don't have good manners. I mean, jeans and tennis shoes today, for goodness sakes. I'm not very polished. But what's amazing is that the day that God chose me, 
And the day that God called me, all that crap didn't really make a difference to him. After 27 years, God has continually worked around my personal deficiencies and personal deficiencies and skills. He's worked around my temperament. He's worked around all those errors in my life to work His will for His purposes. Even though my seminary professors were 100% right, I don't have what it takes to be in ministry. Just like a handsome, pretty-eyed shepherd boy had no business being king. Heck, I'm not even handsome. He was at least good-looking. You see, when others see a shepherd boy, God can see a king. I remember when it kind of changed for me. This is like a month after my professors had just given this speech to me, right? You know, you might be able to do some children's ministry, Joe. You might be able to do maybe, I don't know, maybe a school teacher, but you really can't. I don't, we don't think you should really pursue. You're going to be disappointed and discouraged. And that really hurt me, but I knew God had called me. About a month and a half later, I'm in a service in my home church, Temple Heights Baptist Church. It's no longer even around anymore. It was in Tampa at the time. It was a big church, about 1,000 people. And my pastor, Al Cockrell, was preaching, and he was talking about God calling people to ministry. And I was enjoying the sermon. I was sitting in the back because I like to sit in the back because of my sniffling and coughing and stuff. I didn't want to disturb people. And uh, he says, here's an example of God transforming somebody and calling them into ministry. And then for 10 minutes in front of this church of 1,000 people, he calls my name out and starts talking about me. And he says, you all know Joe Davis. He's been here since he was a ninth grader when he came to the school and started coming to the youth group. And he's been here all these years. And we know Joe has his flaws. And he's laughing about it a little bit. And, you know, it's, 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 it's cute and it's funny. He says, but I will tell you what we have seen as elders in our church as God has taken Joe and God has put people in his life people who mentored me, people who discipled me, people who believed that God had called me. He says, we have seen God transform Joe from this guy who had no chance of being in ministry to somebody that I would let preach. And he went on for like 10 minutes. At the end of the sermon, I was like, I'm, I'm tears, you know, I'm crying. Because remember, a month and a half ago, I was just told, you know, you're not supposed to be in ministry. So I had lunch with him the next week, and I said, Al, I just want to tell you, this is what my seminary professors told me like a month and a half ago. And he said, and I have to give him credit for this line, they're 100% right, Joe. <laughs> but it doesn't matter. They can be 100% right, and it doesn't matter. Because I know what you know. And Joe, what I know is that God has clearly called you to ministry because you can't do anything else. And I said, I said, thank you. <laughs> and he says, I'm in the same boat. See, what men see in you, what you see in yourself 
is irrelevant to what God sees and what He has called you to do. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what your job is. It doesn't matter what your deficiencies are. It doesn't matter how skinny or how fat or how tall or how short, how loud, how quiet. It doesn't really matter. None of that stuff is relevant. What you see, what other people see, it only matters, guys, what God sees. I preached a series a few months ago about trusting redemption. About how God's redemption is good, and if He's redeemed you, you can trust it. You may not feel like it, but you can trust it. And what is going on in your life, the things that weigh you down, what's so amazing about God's grace is that it doesn't matter because if He has called you to be a blessing to people, then you're going to be a blessing to people even if you're loud, even if you're obnoxious, even if you're insensitive, even if you're impatient, even if you have an anger problem. If God has called you, you can be used. How much of what men see keeps you from experiencing what God sees in you as one of His chosen children? How much? i got to tell you, after that meeting with my professors... I started calculating, okay, how many of my courses would transfer over to a business major? Three. Maybe I can coach football. Hmm, I'll drive a Toyota the rest of my life. An old one. Maybe I can, I don't know, be a short order cook. Maybe I can be, and you get the point, I started going through this list, I said, maybe I can be a lawyer, because I can talk a lot, and I'm insensitive, (laughs) and rude, (laughs) just, if you're a lawyer, I'm just joking, come on, (laughs) I'm just joking, and it occurred to me, I don't care what my professor says. I don't care what my deficiencies are. I have to be in ministry. Because that's what God has chosen me to do. And so for you, as one of your shepherds, what my heart is for you, and I I love each and every one of you, I'm so thrilled to have you as part of a church family, right? It means so much. And I look for the faces as they come in, and I'm excited. And when you're not here, I miss you. And so some of them that are not here today, make sure you make them feel guilty during the week. Because... I'll be insensitive about it. You can do a better job. But, but my point is this. My heart for you is that you will get to the point where it won't matter so much to you what other people see in you or what even you see in you. That you'll start saying, God, what do you see in me? How are you going to work in and through my life, through this person at work or through this person in my neighborhood? Because guys, I'll tell you, what other people think, it didn't matter for David. And it won't matter for you.